Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 8. Last week, I wrapped up the summary of the book of Judges, with the narrative about how the Benjaminites were saved from extinction. That's how the headline reads in the New Revised Standard, where the NIV titles the section, Wives for the Benjaminites. Either way you go, that story is found in the last chapter of the book. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning the history of the book itself, before covering the people, places, and things found in it, focusing mostly on one of the source texts. And with that, let's get started. Judges, within the context of the Old Testament narrative, covers the time period between the conquest of Canaan described in the book of Joshua in the establishment of a united kingdom in the books of First and Second Samuel, which of course means this period was when there was no king, and loose control of the territory was held by the various judges, eleven of them in total, Othniel, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, Ibsen, Elon, Abdin, and Samson. In some cases, we're given a great deal of history, multiple chapters, but in other cases, just a few sentences. Most of the stories about these leaders follow a pattern. The people are unfaithful to God. They then fall to their enemies. Next, the people repent, begging God for mercy and deliverance. To facilitate this rescue, a leader is sent to bring them out from under their oppressors, a.k.a. The judge. The judge does as advertised, but it isn't to last. The Israelites again fall back on their sinful ways, and again they are oppressed by their neighbors and enemies, all to repeat the vicious cycle time and again. So far, this isn't new news, as I've mentioned it many times as I've summarized the book. What is new in this episode is how that book came to be. Many biblical scholars consider some of the stories in Judges to be among the oldest among the Deuteronomistic history. This category of books covers Joshua, Judges, and the Samuels and Kings. These same researchers think the books were likely edited before the Babylonian exile, with the editing occurring sometime in the 8th century BC. Some of the narrative, like the Song of Deborah, is likely even older. Backing up a bit, and just for a second, remember that much of the religion believes that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, meaning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, save the last little bit of that last book, the part occurring after Moses' death. Many think Joshua wrote the book bearing his name, but Judges is different. Many of the phrases used in it, such as, to this day, point to a later authorship, in a similar thread to when the book mentions who maintains the altars and the like until the captivity. All of this means it was likely written, assembled, edited, perhaps all of the above, well after the events it recounts. Within the book, Judges contains a rough chronology of its events, usually given a number of years to each interval of judgment and peace. And this numbers orientation was likely introduced at a later period. 
To put another way, this chronology is one of the pieces thought to have been added to the text well after the events recounted. And, if you think it through, this makes a certain amount of sense. The stories could have been easily passed down, but the exact number of years between each judge requires hindsight. Despite this potential for later authorship, the book is well attested to in many diverse sources. Parts of the book are found on four different scrolls that are part of the overall Dead Sea Scrolls. These four were found in three different caves in the Dead Sea region. There's also the Aleppo Codex, which dates to the 10th century AD, and is considered to be the oldest complete surviving copy of the book, at least that recorded in Hebrew. More on that codex in a minute. The Greek Septuagint, from the 3rd century BC, was likely the source for later versions of the book, especially those that served as the foundation for what Christians consider the Old Testament. As for the Aleppo Codex, it's a medieval-bound manuscript of the Hebrew Bible. When combined with what's known as the Leningrad Codex, combined, they form what's known as the Ben Asher Masoretic Tradition. This is the version of the Masoretic text that I've referenced numerous times. The Codex was written in a city of Tiberias around the year 920 AD. This was while the region was under the control of the Muslims, in this case, the Abbasid Caliphate. Obviously, and as the name suggests, the Codex, which simply means an ancient transcript, obviously, it originates from Aleppo, a city currently in the country of Syria. In actuality, though, it is not really thought to be from Aleppo, but from a yet-to-be-identified city of Aram Zoba, which was likely near Aleppo. About 100 years after the manuscript was produced, the Karaite Jewish community in Jerusalem purchased the Codex. Then, in 1099, when the Crusaders sieged, then conquered Jerusalem, the synagogue was plundered and the Codex was held for a very high ransom by the Crusaders. After this, the residents of Ashkelon borrowed money from Egypt to pay the ransom for the books. There's a more specific source known as the Letter of the Karite Elders of Ashkelon that records how money borrowed from Alexandria was used to buy back, and this is a quote, 230 Bible codices, a hundred other volumes, and eight Torah scrolls. So, not just the Aleppo Codex, but many other documents. They were then transported to Egypt via a caravan led and funded by a prominent Alexandrian official whose name I'll spare you. This official had been in Ashkelon for his wedding at the time and was heading back to Egypt. That worked out nicely. What I couldn't find was confirmation of my suspicion that the people of Ashkelon who borrowed the money used the documents themselves as collateral and they were taken to Egypt until the loan was paid. Spoiler alert, they would remain in Egypt for hundreds of years. When the manuscripts arrived in Egypt, the codex was placed in the Karaite, then at a synagogue in what is today known as Old Cairo. While in Egypt, the 12th century Jewish philosopher and rabbinic scholar Maimonides had access to it, and used this time to study the Codex extensively. 
He would describe the text as being trusted by all Jewish scholars. The Aleppo Codex was the manuscript used by Maimonides when he set down the exact rules for writing scrolls of the Torah. Almost 200 years after his death, around 1375, it's rumored that one of Maimonides' descendants brought the text to Aleppo, Syria, hence the name we know it by. It would remain there for the next 600 or so years. While there, the Jewish community zealously guarded the document, along with three other biblical manuscripts. All were kept in what's described as a special cupboard, which would later be replaced by an iron safe. All the time in the basement chapel of the central synagogue of Aleppo, which was thought to be the same place as the cave of Elijah. More on that cave when I get to that prophet in the text, at some point in the future. The Codex was more than generally regarded as the community's most sacred possession, to the point that those in trouble would pray before it, and oaths were taken beside it. All the while, the Aleppo Jewish community would receive research requests from Jews all across the globe, queries such as asking for various textual details to be checked. Many of these questions were also recorded in nearby documents. More on those recordings in a minute. Then, and luckily, in the 1850s, a Jewish scholar sent his son-in-law, two more names I'll spare you, to Aleppo to copy information about the Codex. The younger spent weeks copying thousands of details about the Codex into the margins of a small handwritten text. The existence of this text was known about, then finally uncovered in 1989. More on that in a few minutes, too. But these were the exceptions. Overall, the Jewish community of Aleppo limited direct observation of the manuscript by outsiders, especially by scholars in the 18th through 20th centuries. As an example, German scholar Paul Kell, when revising the text of the Biblia Hebraica in the 1920s, tried and failed to obtain a photographic copy. This forced him to use the Leningrad Codex as a substitute. A modern exception to this was Umberto Casodo, who studied the Codex in secret in 1943. He concluded that it was indeed a 10th century text, but likely not the one studied by the Egyptian rabbinic scholar Maimonides. Obviously, this was not to the liking of the Codex's keepers. Then, in 1947, a riot broke out. In this case, the people of Aleppo were fuming about what's known as the United Nations Partition Plan for Palestine, essentially the plan to split up what had been British Mandatory Palestine into pieces that included both Arab and Jewish sectors. It's important to note that the plan did not include the city of Aleppo, as it was still in the French mandate. Still, though, many of the people in the city were upset enough to riot. And when they did, they burned down the synagogue where the Codex had been kept for the previous five-ish centuries. The next ten years in its history are less than clear, but it resurfaced in Israel in 1958, though with about 40% of the previous text missing, meaning only 294 of an estimated 487 pages are currently accounted for. 
the missing portions included most of the Torah. Since that time, only two of the missing pages have been recovered. There's much speculation about the fate of the remaining missing pages, with some thinking they may have been destroyed in the fire, and others proposing they are in private hands. This latter view is seemingly supported by no evidence of fire on the surviving pages. There are dark marks on the pages, but this is a fungus. As for the two pages that have been subsequently found, they are a single complete leaf from the Book of Chronicles and a fragment of a page from the Book of Exodus. These were uncovered in the 1980s, nearly 30 years after the rest of the book was found. All of this giving hope that the remaining missing pieces may be somewhere waiting to be uncovered or returned. I'll have a bit more on the missing pieces in a minute. There are also, potentially, eyewitnesses in Aleppo who saw the codex shortly after the fire and reported that it was complete, or nearly complete. Then again, eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable. But, in the end, as of today, we just don't know. As for the surviving 60%, it's in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, where it's kept in a secure vault and being meticulously restored. Each page is made of parchment, about 13 inches high and 10 inches wide, 33 centimeters by 27. The ink was made from three types of gall, ground and mixed with black soot and iron sulfate. All of this substantial enough to survive over 1,000 years. You may be wondering how did it get to the museum in Jerusalem? In January 1958, the Aleppo Codex was smuggled out of Syria and sent to Jerusalem. At that time, it was placed in the care of the chief rabbi of the Aleppo Jews. It was first given to a Jewish agency, whose rabbi would later testify that the Codex was complete, or nearly so at the time. Later that year, it was given to the Ben Zivi Institute. Also in 1958, the Jewish community of Aleppo sued the Ben Zivi Institute for return of the Codex, but the court ruled against them. In the late 1980s, the Codex was finally placed in the Shrine of the Book at the Israel Museum. This finally gave scholars the chance to examine it and consider, among other things, the claims that it is indeed the manuscript referred to by Maimonides. After a thorough examination, the researchers came to the conclusion that the claim was indeed true. They also suggested that the Codex was not only the oldest known Masoretic Bible in a single volume, but it was also the first time ever that a complete Hebrew Bible had been produced by one or two people as a unified entity in a consistent style. If only those missing pages could be found. But there is something else. Like I mentioned a few minutes ago, over the centuries, while the Codex was in Aleppo, research questions were sent to those who controlled the document. The questions and answers were recorded, and many of these records still exist. There's also the text recorded by the son-in-law at the request of his wife's father. From these records, a better understanding of the missing pieces can be gained. Better, but not complete. You may be wondering why much of it may be missing. Of course, it's valuable. 
but that value can only be obtained on the black market. Then again, that marketplace is still a marketplace, just not as visible. There's another reason some may hold on to pieces of the document. Within the Aleppo Jewish community, which would include those that relocated to Jerusalem after the riot and the creation of the nation of Israel, there was, and may still be, the belief that the Codex holds great power, to the point that the smallest piece of it can ensure the good health and well-being for its owner. In the centuries it was in Aleppo, many believed that women who were allowed to look at it would become pregnant. Also that those in charge of the keys to the vault where the Codex was kept were blessed. Though, blessings also come with curses. It's recorded that community elders had written at the top of some pages, Sacred to Yahweh, not to be sold or defiled. And, Cursed be he who steals it, and cursed be he who sells it. Historically, the community was concerned that if they lost the manuscript, they would be destroyed by a plague. By extension, they believed that anyone who stole or sold the Codex would be hit by the same plague curse. There's also something else worth mentioning. The order of the books is rather typical for manuscripts of the era, but completely different from the way they're presented in our modern Christian Bibles. In the Aleppo Codex, the order is Chronicles, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, then Nehemiah. A different order at least for those parts that have been recovered. The current text is missing all of the Pentateuch up until the middle of Deuteronomy 28. Various pieces of Kings, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, Chronicles, and others are nowhere to be legitimately found. Several complete or partial editions of the Old Testament text based on the Aleppo Codex have been published over the past three decades, mostly in Israel, and some of them under the guidance of Israeli universities. These editions incorporate reconstructions of the missing parts of the Codex based on the methodology of various historic records and accounts. And that's it for the Aleppo Codex, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the history found in the book of Judges. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week... Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.